Let's take our Bibles just for a few moments tonight as we finish up our time together and turn to the book of Luke. This is a section of Scripture that takes place about five months before Jesus ever gets to the cross. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Today, as we have said all throughout this service, is a very solemn remembrance of what Christ has done in being our substitute and taking our place as the Passover lamb, as the one who substituted and sacrificed for us to take our sins and put them to death once and for all. And by doing that, um, he offers eternal redemption to anyone who believes. But to accomplish that, he had to go through unthinkable pain and suffering. Not just from a physical standpoint, even though that was certainly plenty, punished so badly, beaten so severely, but by the time he got to the cross, he was unrecognizable. The pain of the cross, the actual fact of crucifixion, was such an awful torture, the worst thing that the Romans could think of, that they actually created a word to describe the pain, excruciating, of the cross, to, to depict just how violent and how awful it was. But even more than the physical pain, was the spiritual devastation of having the weight of every single sin that has ever been committed and ever will be committed put on him, as well as the deep pain of separation from the Father. Now, we can't fully understand that. But we know that it was so profound that Jesus actually felt forsaken and abandoned by the Father. As he laid on the cross, as he came close to the moment of death, There was such a a sense of the awfulness of the weight of sin and the separation that it causes because sin always has a consequence. It has the consequence of separation from God. That as he bore the weight of of an uncountable to us number of sins, he felt the pain and the consequence of that sin in feeling forsaken by the Father. Now, we can't possibly fathom how awful that day was. And art, no matter how graphic it is, some of you have seen uh, the movie that was put out about the crucifixion a few years back, The Passion, and you know that was just, it made you turn away. It was worse than that. We can't possibly fathom it because art is too sanitized and and our minds only go so far. But what we can say, it was bloody, it was shocking, it was horrific, it was heartbreaking, it was pitiful. There was nothing pretty about the picture of Christ on the cross, which means that for us as his disciples, it's very difficult to grasp, not only because we know that it was our sins that put him there, but because we know that he chose to be there. The cross was not accidental. Jesus didn't fall victim to some subtle, nefarious plot of the Pharisees who kind of tricked him into coming to Jerusalem and trapped him and Judas betrayed him and Jesus didn't see it coming. That's not even close to the truth. This was God's plan from the moment that the shepherds heard the announcement in the field to the moment that Jesus in the symbolism of being wrapped in swaddling clothes was laid in the manger. It was abundantly clear that he had one purpose for coming as God in flesh. That singular purpose was to save mankind from sin. There was no other reason for him to be here. And it's clear from the words that Jesus says at the Last Supper and during his ministry 
that he knew what was going to happen. As Trina said earlier, it's hard sometimes not to know the path and see the end of the story. Well, Jesus from day one knew the path and knew the end of the story. And this action of moving toward the sacrifice began almost a half a year before while he's still in Galilee. Now, that's the introduction. Let's get to the text. Luke chapter 9, start in verse 46. Thank you for turning. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. When the days were approaching for his ascension, verse 51, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned to rebuke them and said, you did not know what kind of spirit you were of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Now, this context that's here gives kind of an extra dose of irony because we see at this pivotal moment of Christ's life the disciples debating about who's going to be the greatest. Apparently, they're starting to enjoy all the tension. And they're starting to find that their pride is swelling and they're getting this vision of greatness and they're starting to see all the accolades uh, from God for believing in Christ and from the crowds for being on the inner circle. You know how it is when you're kind of in the clique. And they're kind of feeling some pride. Isn't this great? And I wonder who, when we get to heaven, who God's going to favor the most, because you know he's going to favor all of us. I mean, you can just hear the discussion. It's ironic because they don't see what's going on with Jesus. They don't even get that his attention is completely different. I want to focus tonight just for a couple minutes. I promise it'll be shorter. Look at that phrase in verse 51 where it says, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. The phrase in the Greek literally means that he fixed his mind on it. The King James is the best, I think, in terms of explaining it. It says, he steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward it. He looked toward it. Now, we've seen all throughout our study of the presence of God that the word presence means the face of God. So I love how personal this is, that Jesus is actually seeing himself in Jerusalem. Now I want you to picture this. Get the literal aspect of it. Not only that he says, mm, probably time to get going toward Jerusalem. But that as he's standing in Galilee, I, this is what I picture from the text, that he actually turns his body to the southwest and he looks toward Jerusalem. You can't see it from Galilee. But from this moment on, Luke 9.51, he says to himself, it's time. And in doing that, he had an unmistakable knowledge of what going to Jerusalem meant. It meant betrayal. It meant accusation and false charges and suffering and agony and torture and death while bearing every single 
sin that will ever be committed. Every lust, every lie, every word of gossip, every murder, every act of worship that is to another false god, every theft, every evil thought, every act of covenant, he felt every single one with full clarity. And he knew that he had come to have those sins put on himself so we could be forgiven and we could live, even though we are absolutely responsible and absolutely culpable for every one of those sins, and he has every right to judge us for every single one. But he also knew that for us to be redeemed, he was the only one that could do it. He knew that it had to happen. For us to be saved, there was no way around the fact of death. And it wasn't going to be a heroic death. It wasn't like people were going to praise him and say, isn't it wonderful that you're making this sacrifice? Even those who are closest to him, him didn't understand what was going on and ran. The religious leaders were, were just rubbing their hands together so excited that they demanded his death. And as he's hanging on the cross, ridiculing him and mocking him, they see him as a controversial nuisance to get out of the way. And it's not going to be an easy death. He tells his disciples in Luke 18, we're going to go to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets is going to be accomplished. He'll be delivered to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and they'll scourge him and they'll kill him. Now, he is God in flesh. We know that. But he was also fully man. He experienced everything that we do, and he was in all points tempted like we are. So to understand that he was going to be whipped and tortured and beaten and slapped and spit upon and crucified was a hard thought. It's not like he could just separate it and say, well, no big deal because I'm God. I can tell myself that I'm not going to feel it. He was God in flesh. The flesh was just as much of the case that carried his perfect spirit. And the flesh felt everything that we feel. So nothing about this was going to be easy. He was going to feel everything that we anticipate and more. The horrific anticipation of unthinkable pain, the emotional pain of rejection, the sadness of the angry rebellion against God, the the righteous frustration at the arrogance of the Pharisees, the reality of separation from the Father. Try to imagine it tonight. If you need to, just close your eyes and put yourself in his place for a moment. We can see it now because hindsight's twenty twenty. We can read it and think about it. But he knew this in advance. And yet, when you look at the text, look back at the verse again. It says he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. There is an extra measure of awe about Jesus when we read that, isn't there? There's a greater height of love and respect. There's a greater depth of humility and sorrow knowing that he still went. And he didn't take his time. He didn't take the roundabout way. He went straight toward Jerusalem. Now that required going through Samaria because to get to Galilee, 
from Galilee to Jerusalem, most people went on the other side of the Jordan River and down, not Jesus. He goes straight through Samaria. And we see in verses 52 and 53 that when he sends some disciples to go prepare from lodging, the people say, "Uh uh-uh, you're not coming here because you're going to Jerusalem. Now, that had nothing to do with his itinerary. It had to do with the fact that his face was set toward Jerusalem. And even as he moves toward the cross, even in the first days before he ever gets to Jerusalem, he's already experiencing the rejection of mankind. Now, disciples are ticked. Well, Lord, um, do you want us to call down some fire from heaven? Like, they can do that. James and John, ah, oh, ha, ha, sons of thunder, ah, we're going to call down some fire. Lord, are you ready? Just tell us when. We'll, we'll be like Elijah. We'll call down the fire. Jesus turns to them, and he rebukes them. That's not just, hey, guys, knock it off. That's stop it. You don't know what you're talking about. I didn't come to, to destroy people. I came to save people. The reason I'm going to Jerusalem and the cross is so people can be delivered from their sin. And I know people will reject me. I know most people will reject me. But I'm going to die for all, so all have the opportunity to be saved. That was God's will. That was Jesus' will. It was why he came and why he was willing to go to the cross for us. Now, there are just two truths here I want to share tonight that we draw from this text. And both of them are absolutely amazing to understand and both of them have deep application for our lives. And I encourage you to just jot them down and think through them and study them throughout the weekend. The first thought is that setting our face on doing God's will requires sacrifice. Setting our face on doing God's will requires sacrifice. Turn just for a minute over to John chapter 15. Just about 30 pages probably. John chapter 15. We want to see just for a minute how Jesus taught and modeled this. John chapter 15 and verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer will I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father. I've made known to you. Now let's be abundantly clear. Jesus did not go to the cross because we are impressive creatures. He did not go to the cross because we are worthy of his acceptance. He did not go to the cross because we have earned our way into heaven. And he did not go to the cross because we were crying out for deliverance. He went to the cross simply and only because he loved us. Now stop and think about that just for a minute. Because it's so amazing and so rich and so wonderful and so unimaginable that I do not want you to miss it. Jesus said there is no greater love than to lay down your life to somebody else, to go to the most extreme level of sacrifice and to offer what is most precious, what is everything, what you literally cannot live without. You cannot live without your life. So it is the most precious, 
valuable thing that you could give. Now put on top of that, offering that to your worst enemy. To the person who has tortured you and mocked you and punished you and done evil to you. Now multiply it by hundreds of thousands of sins per person. And then multiply that times literally trillions of people. And know tonight that he loves us enough to die for that. In fact, he was determined to do it. So often I think people picture Jesus and they say, well, Jesus is love and he's kind of the soft and kind and docile and timid person who just wants to love and accept everybody. But we need to understand from Luke 9.51 that there was a great strength here. There was a great resolve and power and fortitude. He was determined to pay the price. He had his mind set on suffering for us. There's nothing anemic about this. This is complete strength. Now I say to myself, how can I possibly understand that kind of love and sacrifice? I am not a sacrificial creature and neither are you. We are selfish creatures. And if for no other reason, that's why we can't save ourselves. Because we love ourselves too much and we don't want to deny ourselves of sin. We're not that selfless. So there's no way we can save ourselves because we're more about us than about pleasing the Lord. And it's why being a disciple is so hard. Jesus is teaching us here about being his disciples and he modeled it for us so we can't say, it's too much, it's unfair, you can't ask that much of me. You know, I've noticed over the past 10 or 12 years in Christianity that we don't use the word disciple very much. We use the word follower. It's a good word, but it's passive. It's kind of take it or leave it. I think I'll follow this guy for a while. I'll follow this for a while. I think I'll keep up with that for a while. It's a soft word. Jesus said, I want you to be my disciples. A disciple is completely committed. It's how they think, how they live, what they sacrifice for. Literally anything that gets in the way of their conviction, they cannot conform to. Now listen to what Jesus said. If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself and take up your cross daily, and then you can follow me. It's not follow me and kind of decide and figure it out. It's you deny yourself first, and then you will be able to follow me. Whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses himself for my sake will find it. That doesn't mean martyrdom. It means self-sacrifice. He's saying to his disciples, he's saying to us, the requirement for being my follower is a life of sacrificial, self-denying service. And we are called, listen now, this is the point, to determine, to set our face that that's how we're going to live. That's why if you look back at Luke, you see that there are three interactions between verses 57 and 62 where Jesus comes upon people and they're like, I'd love to follow you, but give me some time. I got to go do this and this. I got some business. I got to bury my father. I got all kinds of stuff. And Jesus says, listen, if you're looking back, in other words, if your faith face is not set toward being my disciple, then you're not worthy to follow me. 
if you've got other things that are preoccupying me, you're not fit for the kingdom. Now, there's no question that's not easy, but neither was the cross. So it comes down to who and what we really love more. Do we love ourselves more? Do we love our sin more? Or do we love the Lord more? Because love requires sacrifice. And love for the Lord is no different. In fact, it's deeper. Second thought, and I'm done. That whole concept seems overwhelmingly difficult until we get to the second truth. Go over to Hebrews chapter 12 just for a minute. The second truth is what puts this in perspective. Here's the second thought. Setting our face on doing God's will is an act of joy. Setting our face on doing God's will is an act of joy. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the, tell me the next word, joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, those two sentences, the joy who was set before him, sentence one, sentence two, enduring the cross, despising the shame, those two sentences don't seem to go together. Anybody could have joy about something wonderful. Anybody can be happy about things that are pleasant. But when we know it's going to be painful, how do we have joy about it? See, our toy tends to be materially based. But what Jesus is saying here is that this discipleship, following him, requires a different way of thinking. This is how a disciple thinks. And he says, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to ask something different of you. Let me show you what I endured. I went to the cross knowing I was going to be spit on, knowing I was going to be scourged, that the flesh was going to be torn from my back. People were going to slap me. I was going to experience the full weight of sin. I was going to be separated from the Father. All that was going to be put on me. But as I looked to the cross, I did so with joy. I saw you, Rhodes. You're a sinful rebellious person and you hurt me all the time you disappoint me you deny me through your selfish actions but when i went to the cross it had your name on it and it had your name on it and jesus looked at that and he could have despised it and he as god could have spit on it himself and said i'm god i don't have to do this i owe you nothing that's your cross I'm not going there. And he would have been fully justified in giving us what we deserve. But he didn't. He looked at it and he said, I have joy. Why? Because he knew what the cross would do. He saw my salvation on June 24th, 1974. He saw you give your heart to him and receive his forgiveness. He saw heaven celebrate the salvation of every single soul, and he sees some of you, and he looks at you and says, you still have not given your heart to me. But he set his face toward Jerusalem, knowing that he is the author and finisher of our faith, and he endured it with joy. 
He knew the cross would be awful, but he knew the empty tomb was victory. So he looked forward. Now, as we look towards Sunday, what has hit me so strongly this week is that Jesus' determination should just overwhelm us with gratitude. There is nothing it can do more than change the way we love him and change the way we live as his disciples. Listen to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.8. Though we haven't seen Jesus, we love him. And though we do not see him now, we believe in him. And we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory because we have obtained the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. I don't know all of you. Have you given your life to Christ? I know Good Friday is supposed to be somber and kind of depressing. And certainly it's sobering to think about what Christ did. But my conviction this year, and Randy and I talked about it, and we agreed, tonight's not going to be somber. Tonight is going to be full of joy. Because Jesus went to the cross with joy. He didn't hang his head and say, oh, I can't believe I've got to do this. <sighs> did he? That's not in Scripture. Show me that in Scripture. What did he do? Five months before... When he's standing in Galilee, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And knowing what's coming, he looks toward it with joy. Being a disciple can be a great cost. You can look at it like the pain of Friday. Or you can say, I know that Sunday's coming. I know that the resurrection is real. I know that he has released me from the burden of sin. I know he's provided me. And I know he has filled me with joy as the author and finisher of my faith. So listen, as we prepare for this weekend, let's get our hearts in awe of the love of God and with determination to love him who first loved us. And let's rejoice in his work. Let's rejoice in his salvation. Let's rejoice that he not only calls us his disciples, but he calls us his children. I know it's been distracting to hear those kids, but all throughout the service I've thought that's what the Father hears when he hears us singing. He hears that noise and he goes, that's my kids. I'm not being in any way flippant. I could hear my son, if he yelled out right now, I would know it was him. God loves us. He proved it. It is inescapable. And we celebrate that. But I pray that you will anticipate this weekend. And I pray that you will come here Sunday morning and just be overflowing with joy for what he's done. Father, we thank you and praise you for the work of Christ. We thank you for what we don't deserve. All throughout this evening, we have been so aware of of your grace and your mercy. We love you and we praise you tonight. Lord, I pray if there's someone here that has never experienced your mercy, that they would turn their life to you and know what a joy it is to know you as Savior and as Lord. Lord, bless our time together after the service, our fellowship. 
bring us back Sunday. Lord, bring people that do not know you Sunday morning that can hear the glorious gospel that you are alive. We love you when we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.